to Maritime AgCast, the podcast dedicated to the farmers and the farm community of the Maritimes. We will discuss all things related to the livestock industry with local, regional and national guests, as well as keep you up to date with current markets and industry events. Atlantic Stockyards Limited has been Atlantic Canada's major livestock market for over 60 years. The stockyards attract buyers regionally as well as extending into central Canada. Livestock auctions occur every Thursday with cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, rabbits and poultry all featured. Additional information such as previous market reports, feeder sale dates and vaccination forms can be found on AtlanticStockyards.com. Today we will be joined by Dr. Gwyneth Jones, Dr. Ted Semple, and Holly Hines to discuss common parasites in sheep in Nova Scotia. Dr. Ted Semple graduated from the Ontario Veterinary College in 1976. He worked in a mixed animal practice for the next two years in Cape Breton, followed by 13 years with Fundy Veterinarians Limited. Working within the large animal practice, he worked primarily with dairy, sheep, and bovine embryo transfer. Now Ted's part-time practice is limited to embryo transfer. Ted also taught in the Animal Science Department and the Veterinary Technology Program at Dalhousie Agricultural Campus for more than 35 years. Holly Hines grew up in River John, Nova Scotia on a mixed farm of cattle, sheep, pigs, and poultry. Her love for sheep began when her father bought a couple of Suffolk sheep when she was a child, leading to a long stretch of participation in the sheep project through 4-H. As a classmate of mine, Holly graduated from the Nova Scotia Agricultural College in 2005 and explored other avenues before settling in her position as an agricultural technician at the Dalhousie Agricultural Campus Ruminant Animal Center, where she has been for the last 10 years. Holly's main focus is managing the sheep flock of approximately 60 purebred Texel and Rito Arcotic ewes. Dr. Gwyneth Jones came to Canada in the 1970s, moving to Nova Scotia in 1979 and to the farm on the Knoll Shore in 1983. She has a PhD in zoology from the University of Wales on nematode anatomy. Gwyneth taught part-time the Department of Biology at St. Mary's University from 1989 until her recent retirement in 2019. From 2012 to 2017, she conducted a series of research projects with Dr. Semple and Holly Hines and several undergraduate assistants to investigate the threat of homuncus in the area and the prevalence of anthelmintic resistance. So, Ted, Gwyneth, Holly, welcome to the, your first episode of Maritime AgCast. So, Gwyneth, I might start with you. Um, so, what are some of the common parasites that we see uh, affecting the sheep industry here in Nova Scotia? Well, we can uh, classify them in several different ways. First, there are roundworms or nematodes, as opposed to the cestodes or the tapeworms. And for us, the roundworms are far and away the most important group. Within that group, we can again, we can think of three different kinds of, of problems. The main problem for us is the blood sucking uh, nematode, Haemonchus, or the barber pole worm. But in addition to that, there's a, a large group of parasites that generally cause scouring and that are a problem uh, generally in the late summer into the fall. And there's a third one, which is sometimes an issue that's uh, called nematodirus. And its problem is that it can appear in the spring a couple of weeks after turnout. It's not a problem every year, but it can be. So there are several different groups, but most of the interest in the last few years, for obvious reasons, has focused on, uh, on Haemonchus. So Holly and, and Gwyneth, you both have your own flocks. So obviously this hits you very close to home. 
And I know that the sheep producers have done a lot of work, particularly around Hamuncus, since uh, you folks started your research program in about 2013-14. Can you explain really why Hamuncus is such a concern to the sheep industry in Nova Scotia? Maybe Holly, we'll start with you and, and what you see and how it can affect your flock. Yeah, sure. The barber pole worm, since as Gwyneth said, uh, is the, the blood sucking worm. And what I've noticed in, you know, just the past history in our own flock here at the AC is that it hits really fast, really hard. And especially with younger animals, because imagine uh, Gwyneth will explain later that they can build an immunity up to it. But when you have first time animals out on pasture, they pick and pick up these barber pole worms on the grass. And then once they affect the gut, they really they start sucking blood and they just really go downhill fast. And next thing you know, you have dead lambs out on pasture. And to a sheep farmer, losing any animal is, you know, detrimental to your to your wallet. So you don't want to lose them. But it's just the thing trying to be able to see the problems really quickly. You always want to, you know, keep an eye on your flock, get to know your flock. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely, Holly. And even though I'm a parasitologist, we have lost both lambs and ewes from Hemonchus. I get to feel embarrassed and ashamed, but the point is that it is something that can really take you unawares. And the main danger periods that we see, of course, in lambs, and exactly when that danger starts depends a lot on, on the, the weather uh, in that particular season. So late spring to early summer, through summer, uh, lambs will eventually develop immunity if they survive and uh, thrive that long. But of course, the other danger period is with ewes uh, after lambing. And the danger there is that they can develop a serious infection from overwintering larvae. And it's very unfortunately common to, if you're not paying attention, find a dead ewe in the corner of the barn about three weeks after lambing. So it's a huge issue. A recent scientific paper that I read pointed out that if we can't stay on top of this particular parasite, uh, raising small ruminants uh, in most parts of the world will become impossible. Dr. Semple, maybe a question for you. Holly had mentioned kind of monitoring your flock and looking for signs. What are some of those signs that shepherds can really be looking for in either their lambs or their ewes to monitor whether or not they might have a homunculus problem? Well, I think Gwyneth and Holly sort of summarized it really well. Homunculus is mainly a problem with anemia. We rarely see diarrhea with it unless there's other parasites. Uh, the other parasites that Gwyneth mentioned, including nematodirus, usually causes diarrhea. So flipping back to the bloodworm or the barber pole worm, we usually see an animal that's thin if it's uh, infected badly enough, an animal that may or may not be off feed, an animal that may be hanging back, not eating as well. Uh, but the prime sign, if we catch that animal and look at it closely, is, is anemia and we're checking the lower eyelid. Uh, and it can be as pale as a piece of white paper or china. And the other sign we see, because so much protein has been depleted from the blood, is signs of edema. Uh, and the main sign is bottle jaw, where fluid that normally is retained into the, in the blood by adequate protein levels, because the protein levels are low, pressure is reduced and fluid leaks into the tissue. And the most common site to see it is the lower parts of the body, which would be under the jaw. It's a soft, fluidy feeling sensation. So the most common signs we're going to see are probably a thin animal, uh, a poor doing animal, uh, an animal with bottle jaw. And then when we look closer, 
the first thing we suggest is looking to see if there's anemia. If there's diarrhea, of course, the hind end is soiled. So Gwyneth, you mentioned too that there's a bit of a climate effect or seasonality to forever pearlworm. Can you explain that a little bit to us and how it might be affected by wet versus dry or warm versus cooler weather? Humongous is basically a, a subtropical parasite. You get evolved in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. It needs uh, both warmth and moisture. It needs warmth because uh, the eggs that develop on pasture develop best at temperatures over about 25 degrees centigrade. The cooler it is, the longer the eggs take to develop to the infective stage. So that's one issue, how warm is it? The other issue is that when the eggs are deposited on pasture, they hatch in a day or so, and the larvae that emerge go through a series of molts. The first and second stage, so L1, the first stage larva, molts to the L2, the second stage, and so on. Four larval stages altogether before they get to be adult. The L1 and the L2 are free living, so they live in the fecal pellets in the soil and feed on bacteria. L3 is the dangerous infective stage, and this is important, it has a limited energy supply, so it doesn't feed. In the presence of moisture, it moves out of the fecal pellets and can move into the soil or onto the grass. If you think of nematodes, they're ideally designed for moving in a thin film of water. That's basically, they evolved from soil dwelling um, invertebrates. So they wiggle their way in a moisture film. If it's dry, then they'll stay in the fecal pellet or they'll move down into the soil. Uh, if it's wet, and sometimes even a heavy dew will do, then they're free to move out onto the grass. And then they move um, reasonably uh, without direction uh, up and down uh, on, the, uh, on the herbage. So in a bad year, what we have is after turning the, uh, the sheep out, uh, a bad year would be warm and wet. A good year could be hot and dry, you know, good for making hay, or if it's wet, cool, cooler than average. And we found that in each of the years where we followed patterns of infection in the spring. Uh, the worst year that we came across was 2013. And if you care to look back at the weather data, it was a year that was both wetter and, and warmer than normal through June and July. If we turn our sheep out in the middle of May, then we can expect them to start picking up infective larvae by about the latter part of June. And then we can be looking at uh, real problems in a bad year from really the first week of July onwards. In a less favorable year for the parasite, might be a slow buildup. We may not see uh, problems till end of July, uh, even into August, but very, very weather dependent. And the reason for this, of course, is that the eggs and the larvae will not survive over winter in pasture to any important extent. So they survive in the adult sheep. The adult sheep contaminate the pasture and then the weather will indicate how long it's going to be before we get a serious buildup of infection in the grass. So if the larvae live or thrive in wet, warm temperatures, is the spread or the infection rate something that we can control by better pasture management or turning out uh, our flock a little later? Um, Holly, have, have you done any you know, different pasture management uh, that you think has a positive impact? 
I have noticed uh, with this flock here, we do really well with the rotational grazing. We have four strips over at Brookside Pastures right now, and those four strips are blocked into three blocks each. So we do have the 12 blocks and we just keep rotating those animals around. And what you want to watch for, what you want to make sure that you're not doing is once you throw your animals out onto that paddock or that first block, you want to move them to the next one, but you don't want to come back to that first one until, you know, at least 21 to 28 days. And another thing that's really helped us here is we tend to clip after each time, just any of that tall grass that's, you know, that they don't consume because they're not going to consume it the next time they come around. We just go out with a little flail mower and mow it. So that's worked really well for us. We haven't really had to deworm a whole lot with our flock. We just do spot deworming here and there. And as we'll hopefully learn a little bit more, it's best not to worm your ewes and put them out to clean pasture, which I don't do. Since they lamb in March, I'll watch for any ewes that are kind of thinner and I won't do a blanket deworm. I'll just do those spot ones. This year so far, I think I've only treated two or three. So that's kind of what I want to stick with is just keeping those parasites on pasture that are actually going to be not resistant to the dewormer. Um, so the other animals can pick those up and naturally through their own immune system can actually throw immunity against those bad worms. So one of, one of the other things you mentioned too is that the adult barber pole worms live in the ewes over winter. Uh, maybe a question for you or, or Dr. Semple is, is there a way with selective treatment that we can kind of eradicate or get rid of those worms over winter? Obviously, if the cold uh, weather we have here uh, in Nova Scotia gets rid of the pasture, what's the best way to break the cycle and keep it broken, I guess? You want a quick answer? No, there isn't one. If you treat every animal, which is the only way you could approach killing all the parasites, you are inevitably going to have some that are resistant to the wormer. And if the ewes then are in all winter, harboring, even if it's just a, a few, very few resistant worms, then when they go out in the spring, the larvae that end up on pasture will have those genes for resistance. And over time, and it may take a number of years, but over time, you're gonna end up with a resistant population. It will look as if it's working, for a year, a couple of years, a few years, but ultimately you'll be in deep trouble if you try and eliminate the parasites in the ewes. In upcoming events on June 16th, a virtual interactive workshop will be held for the Canadian Roundtable for Sustainable Beef Certified Sustainable Beef Framework. Additional information can be found at nscattle.ca. Perennia will host a live webinar with the local line team on June 17th discussing the Accelerated Direct Marketing Program relaunch. More information is available at perennia.ca forward slash coronavirus. Two summer jobs are still available through the Ag Commodity Management Association and Sheep Producers Association of Nova Scotia with closing dates of June 18th. Both of these jobs closings can be viewed at nssheep.ca. Upcoming Atlantic Stockyards feeder sale dates include June 17th. That is a feeder and regular sale. Check out AtlanticStockyards.com for a full sale schedule. The agri-stability enrollment deadline of April 30th has been extended to June 30th, 2021. Additional information can be found at agr.gc.ca. And there are now many Nova Scotia programs available for the 2021-2022 program year. A full list as well as applications and guidelines can be found by visiting 
www.ca forward slash programs. So yeah, so it, it's kind of that quick fix, but long-term pain. So you betcha, yes. I, I guess my next question, this is maybe a question for you, Dr. Semple, on the genetic side. Is this something that we can selectively breed for, similar to what's been done with brachii in the industry as a way to eradicate the problem or at least control? To sort of be preface that, is, is it's important to understand that those larvae become dormant in the yo in the fall uh, in her body and most wormers will not kill those larval stages. What happens when an animal gives birth, pretty well in all species, immunity drops. So the immunity against those larvae drops in those adult sheep. The worms come out and she gets homonchus at lambing or just after lambing. Uh, in terms of trying to eliminate it from her, Gwyneth has mentioned sometimes that we can avoid the heavy infection in the ewes uh, in the fall by selective pasture, just like Holly meant. I suppose the other point is, is what we tend to see in terms of worm outbreaks is adult sheep in the spring when they give birth, the young animals later uh, in the year when the pastures are contaminated. The infections that we tend to see in young animals in the spring are from eggs of the other species like Nematodirus, Trichostrongulus, that can overwinter and they pick them up early in the spring. So we tend to see sort of two peaks of worm infestations, diarrhea in the spring in our, our lambs from last year's eggs, and then later in the spring from picking up homonchus uh, larvae that cause the anemia as opposed to diarrhea. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in fact, we found that we were picking up eggs in feces fairly consistently 18 days after turnout, but those were due to nematodirus, the spring worm, and not to the others. Then we'll pick up the ones that cause scours. By uh, mid to late summer, at least 80% of the eggs being deposited in feces were hemonchus. If we're looking for uh, attempts at trying to select animals that are resilient to those parasites or, or less uh, susceptible to them, there certainly has been some work in saying, okay, we, we're checking animals, say, every three weeks. And if there's one particular animal that we have to reworm every time for homonchus, she's reinfected, reinfected, that would be one that we would suggest that you cull uh, because she doesn't have good, uh, good immune system, good resilience against that parasite, as opposed to ones that we keep checking and we never have to treat. Yeah, there is a moderate heritability for resistance to parasite. Now resistance meaning the genetic ability to uh, control the numbers or the uh, pathogenic effects of the parasite, as opposed to resilience, which means that they can still survive and thrive even though they may have a large worm burden. And that seems to be inherited less effectively. And it does mean that even a, a really nice well-growing lamb can still be depositing lots of eggs on pasture. Estimate being about five to 10,000 eggs per female worm. And it's easy to have hundreds or, or even thousands of worms in one poor unfortunate animal. The load deposited on pasture is absolutely enormous. It's also said that 20% of your animals shed 80% of the eggs or other people put it as 30% shed 70. The general idea is, is a small number uh, are responsible for a high shedding level. Uh, and we can sometimes cut that down by saying 
These are the ones that consistently have high counts. These are the ones that we're consistently treating. Maybe they should be considered for our co-list. It would be possible over the long term to develop a more resistant flock. And they've certainly done a lot of work on that in Australia and New Zealand, where of course they have large flocks. And it's a lot easier to do genetic selection in a large group of animals. And we have a group of 70 odd ewes and it's hard to get fresh blood in for this particular breed. So it would be an extremely long-term project to try and rely strictly on, uh, on genetics. So switching gears a little bit, is it a little easier to control parasites in intensive uh, flocks than it would be extensive flocks? If you keep them in the barn, they do pretty well. If you keep the lambs in the barn, they, they do fine and they tend not to need any worming treatment at all. But if they go out to pasture as uh, yearlings or if you're planning on selling any as breeding stock, then those yearlings or two-year-olds, whatever, will be just as naive to parasites as the lambs were. So you can, yes, if you're just looking at market lambs and you have the uh, source of feed, but as a means of maintaining a breeding flock, it doesn't work. So I guess a secondary question there, and I, and I guess this might be for Holly, just more on the farm management and farm practices side. As far as pasture versus forage, do you tend to cut forage off a field where your lambs or your yos have been previously pastured? Or do you try to keep those uh, two pieces of ground separate? And does that help control the potential spread of parasites? We always leave our pasture just our pasture. When I said when we go in and clip whatever they didn't eat, that just gets mulched back into the pasture. But currently on the farm now, we don't have any pasture that the, the sheep or any land that the sheep have gone out to. Um, and we don't harvest that. But it's another story for the dairy cows. We do have pasture that we take off from the dairy cows. But no, we tend to keep it strictly sheep pasture. So you bring up cattle there. You know, the, there are a significant number of producers here in the Maritimes that would probably have both cattle and sheep. Is there a way that they can be either grazed in back-to-back -back cycles or pastured together to help control parasites? And are there parasites we should be concerned about uh, that may affect both cattle and sheep? Yeah, co-grazing sheep and cattle is fairly effective because in general, uh, they don't uh, harbor the same worms. Having said that, it is possible, particularly for calves, that they do harbor some hemonchus. They don't come down with, uh, with problems as far as I'm, I'm aware, but it's always at least conceivable that they could just maintain uh, a low level of infection to start the lambs off with. Co-grazing is said to be more effective than alternate grazing. You can uh, co-graze also with horses, if you have enough horses, but other small ruminants, especially not goats, uh, because goats harbor the same parasites and develop immunity much more slowly, much more ineffectively than sheep do. Uh, grazing goats and sheep together can be a real issue. Llamas and alpacas also tend to share the same parasites, but you tend only to have uh, uh, one or two animals in, in with the flock. The other ruminant that is a cause for concern if it's grazing with your sheep or alternately with your sheep or in the winter is uh, the white-tailed deer. And that uh, harbors a parasite that sporadically and occasionally can cause a very serious infection in, in sheep. So you bring up some wildlife. So wildlife is always concerned for sheep producers, whether or not it's predators and infecting their flock. And Gwyneth, you bring up uh, white-tailed deer, which 
think everybody would agree, a significant challenge uh, for farmers across the province, whether or not they're going through fences or they're eating up crops and, and now the, the parasite issue. So what is that common parasite that could challenge the sheep industry from the wildlife? It's the delightfully named Perilaphus strongylus tenuis, uh, <laughs> brainworm. As its name suggests, it lives on the outside of the grain, the hindbrain, in deer. Very common in deer, and the deer are well adjusted to it. So you almost never see a deer with adverse effects. It's very common. Most fawns are infected within their first year. Uh, it requires a second host. So the larvae that hatch out in the feces in, infect slugs and snails, just about any little terrestrial slug or snail. And there they develop to the infective uh, L3 third stage larva. When eaten, they emerge in the gut, pass through the wall of the gut and make their way to the spinal cord where they wander around for a little while, then follow the uh, spinal cord to the brain where they're quite happy living, uh, mating and laying eggs. The unfortunate issue is if they get into essentially the wrong host. And classically, typically, this is a problem in moose. In fact, it's known as moose sickness. And uh, this relates to even back in the 1930s, stories of moose with paralysis and staggering around and ending up on the road and dying. It will also affect any small ruminant, particularly the uh, llamas and alpacas. They seem to be particularly susceptible. Very occasionally, from what the literature says, and I've seen reference to a couple of cases even in horses, but that seems to be extremely rare. Problem is, in the wrong host, they kind of get lost in the spinal cord, they keep moving, so they cause mechanical damage and they cause inflammation. And the result is varying degrees of paralysis, particularly on the hind end, which can be minor and the animal will get over it more or less, or it can result in death. So it's, it's something that will affect an individual animal, usually late summer, early autumn, when they just accidentally pick up one of these tiny little slugs or snails on the grass. You raise this as a pretty big concern for the sheep producers, but how prevalent is it actually? Do we see it a lot? Is it kind of a once in a while? Do we have a good handle on how prevalent it is across the province? In sheep and goats, no. It's the individual animal once in a while. Probably just that it's, it's very noticeable and very different from other parasite problems. Uh, some people do seem to have uh, serious issues, possibly once in a while, possibly not. Do have uh, acquaintances who had a, a flock of about 15 goats that were wandering in, in the woods with the deer and they had uh, four of them come down with, uh, with brainworm out of a flock of 15. So it can be prevalent, but typically I think we've seen it maybe half a dozen times over getting on for 40 years. Okay, so definitely something we should be concerned about, um, but it, it isn't that common. So I'm gonna switch yeah. gears a little bit maybe here, and we've talked about preventing, observing, and managing, but let's talk a little bit about what we do to actually control or treat parasites, particularly maybe barber pole, since that's kind of where we narrowed our, our discussion in here. Ted, maybe we'll start with you. I, I know that uh, over the last few years, you and Gwyneth and, and Holly and your research team uh, that have been monitoring and, and doing some work on this in Nova Scotia have done some work on accessing through an emergency uh, use a treatment. So can you describe uh, how we treat and what we can treat uh, barber pole with? Well, that's a rather broad question, but I think mo the most important thing is that we 
have to continue getting away from broad spectrum treating everybody like we used to do. Uh, when I first graduated, it was very common to say, worm them every month and worm everybody. Uh, Gwyneth's work especially has shown a high level of resistance to the most common wormers. And having said that, the most established wormer for sheep, the one that's been licensed the longest is Ivomet. There's only three wormers licensed for sheep in Canada, and that's Ivomet, uh, StarTech, and Flukover. The other wormers that we use are not licensed for sheep, although they're licensed in other countries uh, and we're using them for sheep. But it's just those three. Oldest one is Ivomet. So almost all flocks that we investigated had a high level of resistance to Ivomet. In other words, no longer useful. And many reasons were that it was blanket treatment of everybody. So what we're trying to encourage is strategic worming or selective worming. Only those that show signs of homunculus should be wormed. We don't worm everybody. Part of that is to leave uh, a level of residue on pasture, as Holly mentioned. So we're using um, a scale looking at the level of anemia and those that are obviously anemic are the ones we worm, the ones that aren't, we don't. The frequency of checking depends on the level of homunculus in the flock, but we generally say every three weeks. If we have a high level of homunculus, we probably should be checking every two weeks. Here's the market report for the weekend at June 4th, 2021, brought to you by Atlantic Stock Airs Limited which has been Atlantic Canada's primary auction market for more than 60 years. In the local hog market, base price in Nova Scotia was $2.56 per kilogram, up 2.75 cents from last week. In Ontario, base price was up 2.8 cents from last week to $2.47 per kilogram. In the Quebec market, base price was $2.49 per kilogram, up 1.1 cent from last week. On the cattle side, fed cattle price at Atlantic Beef Products was flat at $2.48 on the rail. In Ontario, live steers sold for $1.47, moving up one cent from last week. And in Quebec, rail price was $2.51, down two cents from last week. Call cattle Atlantic Stockyard sold for $0.97, cents, a downward change of four cents from last week. While rail price at Atlantic Beef Products was $1.58, no change from the prior week. Calls in Ontario averaged 80 cents, down two cents from the prior week, and 81 cents in Quebec, moving up four cents. Good Bob calves between 90 and 120 pounds at Atlantic Stockyard sold for $134, down $21, while calves in Ontario were up two cents to a price of $1.82 per pound. Calves in Quebec were $1.66, a drop of nine cents per pound. Base price for lambs at Northumberland is $15.40 per kilogram and $6 per kilogram. 50 to 64 pound lambs at Atlantic Stockyards average $3.75 per pound at 53 pounds. In Ontario, 50 to 64 pound lambs average 3.36 and a half at 59 pounds ranging from 220 to $4.20 a pound. For 65 to 79 pound lambs at Atlantic Stockyards, they averaged $3.65 per pound at 66 pounds. And in Ontario, 65 to 79 pound lambs averaged $3.18 per pound at 72 pounds, ranging from $2 to $3.77 and a half. Ewes at Atlantic Stockyards range from $130 to $270, averaging $195. And in Ontario, 
ewes averaged $1.95 at 145 pounds and ranged from 30 cents to 305. Make sure you check out the association websites for additional pricing information. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely it. And I know a lot of the work that you folks have done has been uh, definitely to get away from that whole flock treatment. And uh, because of the resistance of the parasites to a lot of the treatments to really focus. So maybe, maybe a question for you, Holly. One of the things we see, particularly in the sheep industry in Nova Scotia, is a lot of small flocks. So I think the average flock size is around 32 or 33, uh, which probably means a lot of these folks are, are not full-time shepherds uh, and definitely probably not full-time farmers. So if we're looking at the flock, the whole flock every three weeks to kind of monitor, you know, how do you manage that as part of your, your overall animal health program? Yeah, as I said before, through experience here, the best thing to do is get to know own animals. You know, you want to be able to go into your flock um, and see if there's anybody off. Yeah, that's what I do. So basically, I go out every day, I check the animals, I do my own fecal samples every two to three weeks, usually. Uh, and then so when you have a small flock, I mean, you should be able to look at, you know, 25 to 30 animals every evening, you should be looking at your animal at night, you know, make sure everybody's there and healthy. And it, even if you have to go through every two weeks, as Dr. Semple said, and just go quickly through and check their eyes. I mean, if you're not set up with a, you know, a corral or a handling system, you, sh you know, you should still be going out there seeing if anyone has any drastic weight loss, if anybody, uh, if they're DAG scoring, which is just basically the collection of feces around the bum, if it's, if it's higher than normal, you know, you should be looking at those kind of things. And as I said before, just getting to know your animals, when that animal acts off uh, because it has an infection or high infection, hopefully, if you know your animals, you're going to notice that right away. But for any of those part-time people, I just recommend getting into that daily routine of going out and looking at them at least once a day. And then every two weeks, hopefully, if you can run them through a handling system, if you can't, you know, just keep a closer eye on them, I guess, if you can just put a little grain on the ground, kind of handle them a bit. Those ones that you notice maybe are, you know, have dropped a little bit of weight and kind of suspicious looking, kind of grab them and just quickly just pull their, their lower eyelid down and have a look at the uh, FAMASHA scoring. Uh, that's what I tend to do. I, as I said, I go out once a day at least to go check them and routine fecal samples. Um, and if I do notice one, I'll try to pick on that one and kind of separate her from the flock and have a closer look. Because as I said before, there's nothing harder on the wallet than losing a full-grown ewe or even a lamb. So. so one of the things you mentioned, Holly, just there a couple of times was being able to do your own fecal egg counts. Um, so maybe, I don't know if this is a, a better question for Ted or for Gwyneth, but how easy, I guess, is it to do your own fecal egg count and what you need to do it? It's if I can do it, anybody can do it. So <laughs> Gwyneth is the one who taught me uh, how to do it. And really, if you can afford or, or keep an eye out for a cheap microscope, that's the most important thing. A couple of the, um, the slides, McMaster slides, some salt, water, and a thing to shake it up in or, and, uh, and to um, stir up your, your feces. And yeah, it's, you know, instead of trying to find your way to churro, drop your samples off at the path lab. And it does add up, you know, money wise. I know, you know, there's not a lot of rich sheep farmers and, you know, I, I, I come from one of my father's one. If you don't want to spend the money or you don't have to spend the money, uh, it's better not to. So if you can save yourself the money by doing it, 
yeah, it's it's worth it in my mind. And it's it's a really easy task. It is a bit time consuming, but as I said before, losing an animal is is a lot harder on the wallet. So Gwen, if you, you taught Holly, it sounds like she has a pretty good handle on it. So, you know, what does the peak leg count actually look like? You know, how do you set it up and what exactly are you looking for? Well, you should watch Holly's uh, video. Uh, explains it extremely well. What you're looking for are the uh, parasite eggs. Now, unfortunately, you can't tell the difference between the half a dozen different species that are in there. But uh, certainly by end of June, beginning of July, you can estimate that most of them are going to be humongous. So you're looking for eggs in feces. The eggs are about is it 0.8 millimeters. So they're too small to see without a, a reasonable microscope, although it doesn't have to be a fancy one. Even uh, you know, some of the uh, children's uh, toy microscopes will have enough magnification. You need some feces. You can uh, collect random samples from the pasture, or if you want to be more accurate, take a, a disposable glove and uh, remove a few from, uh, from the rear end of the animal. That fecal sample, you don't have to look at it right away. You can keep it for about three, up to about three weeks in the, in the fridge, but not frozen. Frozen uh, kills humongous, and then you, you don't have a count at all. You weigh out a set amount of feces, and you mix them up in a specific volume of salt solution. And that's basically just uh, add salt to water until no more will dissolve, then you have a saturated solution. That's all you need. The uh, two principles involved are you use a salt solution because at that concentration, the eggs will float and all the rest of the junk in the feces will sink to the bottom. So it's easier to see the eggs apart from the, uh, the rest of the residue. Uh, the other is that if you have three grams of uh, feces mixed up in 45 uh, mils of salt solution, when you count on a counting slide, add up all the eggs that you see on the slide, multiply by 50, and that gives you immediately gives you the, uh, the eggs per gram. So it's, uh, it's basically, it's, it's a dilution factor. So if you can take a, a known uh, weight of feces, and mix it up in 15 times the volume of salt solution, mix it up really well. And that's the, the critical point is to mix it up really well because the wretched little eggs will float really quickly in the salt solution. And then take a, an eyedropper or a pipette and suck some up from the, uh, the fluid. The counting slides have plastic slides with two chambers with a grid marked on the top. Fill the two chambers, uh, let it sit for a couple of minutes so the eggs float up under the uh, upper surface of the slide. And then when you put the slide under the microscope, you just count all the eggs that you see in the two grids. Grid one plus grid two times 50 eggs per gram. So it is very simple. Get the feces, weigh them out, measure the salt solution, mix them up, put them on the slide, put them on the microscope, count. Yeah, so it, it does sound like a fairly simple process. Sounds like it's pretty easy to get set up. You mentioned even some of the, the children's microscope uh, that come in sign sets are, would be adequate. So what would be the typical magnification factor that you'd have to have to make this a little easier? The eyepiece is usually a times 10 magnification. And the objective, the best objective to use is also a times 10. So the total magnification is times 100. That's what the grid is designed for easy scanning at, at that magnification. 
but you can get by with somewhat lower magnification, but if it's too low, it's much too hard to see, see the eggs. So I, I would say that if you've got something that will give you 100 magnification, that's, that's perfect, that's ideal. You don't even need to go higher than that. But uh, you'd probably get away with 50 times probably if that's the only microscope you can find. But eBay seems to be a fairly good source of uh, cheap second, relatively cheap secondhand microscopes. In the courses that we ran, a number of people did uh, come up with their own microscopes that they got that way. Just looking at Amazon here as we chat, and uh, it looks like you can buy a student microscope with 100 to 2000 times magnification for about 120 bucks. So it, it does seem, I, I don't know what the, the sample would be if you take it to the, the lab here in Truro. I don't know if Holly or Ted or Gwyneth would know, but uh, I'm guessing you could uh, pay for the microscope pretty quick uh, versus sending in samples to the lab. Probably could if you were kind of worried about, uh, about the whole flock. That's a very good price for that would be a decent microscope. Anything we've missed here, folks? If you're buying in animals, uh, you don't want to oh, buy yeah. in resistant parasites at the same time. So if you buy in an animal, particularly, of course, a ram, uh, when you get it home, put it in quarantine and treat it with every wormer you can lay your hands on and then preferably keep it isolated for a few days, turn it out into your own wormy pasture so it picks up your worms and hopefully dilutes out any resistant worms that it's got with the uh, susceptible worms that you still have in the field. So treating introductions is, is really important. Yeah, and for folks that are interested more in that, we did a, an animal health podcast uh, with Dr. Uh, Shankles and Jonathan as well that talks about biosecurity and introducing uh, new animals to your flock. So definitely encourage you to, to get a little bit more information in that in detail. Anything else, folks? A lot of people are always worried about seeing uh, evidence of tapeworms in the lamb feces out on pasture. But adult tapeworms, the adult tapeworm that we see around here in sheep in Monesia uh, is very rarely a problem. It usually appears maybe end of June, early July, and it's around for a couple of months, usually in the lambs, and then it disappears again. It's always there, and it also uses a second host, and that second host is a, a, a soil mite. So you're never gonna be able to get rid of soil mites in your pasture, I'm sorry to tell you. Uh, so likely uh, Monesia will be there. It's not an issue, we ignore it. But if you feel the need to get rid of it, then the common wormers and the ones that are licensed for sheep will not affect tapeworms. So Ivermec won't, Dartect won't, uh, and Flukiver is really only effective against Humongous. And the other wormers that we bring in and get by prescription through the veterinarians, uh, say Val Valbazin, uh, or um, safeguard, do not get them either. Those are what we call the white wormers. Uh, in terms of goats in with our sheep, we do consider the parasites shared between them. We're also concerned about uh, Yoni's disease, which could be shared between those animals and also Caseus lymphadenitis. So we often try to discourage uh, mixing goats and sheep, uh, which probably annoys some people to hear that said. So I definitely want to thank uh, Dr. Semple, Dr. Jones, and Holly for joining us today. As always, it's great to hear your perspective on uh, animal health, especially when it comes to parasites and sheep. Um, you folks have done some fantastic work as a, as a research team 
over the last seven or eight years uh, here in Nova Scotia. Uh, for folks looking to see some of those research reports, uh, they can visit nssheep.ca and we'll have a couple of extra links in our show notes as well for anybody seeking additional information. With that, again, thank you very much, folks, and we look forward to speaking to you uh, again. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Brad. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Don't want to miss any future episodes? Subscribe to a Maritime Acast today through Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast platform. This concludes another episode of Maritime Agcast. We would like to thank our producer, the Agri-Commodity Management Association, Director Ashley, as well as Matt Whitehour and Micah Dahl-Anderson of archesaudio.com for providing the music you heard during this episode. Until next time, happy farming and keep feeding the Maritimes.